strictures on abolitionism part e from bible defense of slavery by josiah priest this librivox recording is in the public domain strictures on abolitionism part e national colonization of the free black population of the united states advocated by the publishers to elevate such a race of beings to a political equality with the white population would be suicidal in the extreme it would be but applying the torch to that political magazine whose inevitable explosion would destroy our whole grand superstructure of boasted liberty and rend to atoms the noblest form of civil government the world ever saw such an attempt we trust will never receive the sanction of an american citizen it is fraught with the most disastrous consequences as all past experience clearly demonstrates these people are drones upon society nay worse they are a curse to every community in which they exist their existence in the slave states is an evil of the first magnitude they tend to render worse than worthless more than an equal number of slaves without contributing one iota to the amelioration of the condition of the slave however wretched that condition may chance to be it is therefore the bounden duty of every friend of humanity to labor for their entire removal from our midst we repeat their presence is a universal evil destructive alike to the peace morality safety and prosperity of every community in which they are to be found whether existing in a free or a slave state in this respect they are upon the same footing as the red man of the forest but being of a race naturally inferior their existence in our midst is more to be deprecated than would be that of the indian extend to him the same degree of civilization and inure him from childhood to the same habits of industry and he will make a citizen neighbor much less objectionable in every point of view than the negro the condition of the free negro in the free states is generally much worse than that of the same class of persons whether free or slave in the slave states the severity of the climate being much less adapted to natural peculiarities of his constitution and the price which he can receive for his services when disposed or compelled by necessity to labor these combined with the fact that there is much less sympathy for him and much less charity extended towards him by the citizens of the free than of the slave states combine to render his condition in almost every respect infinitely worse in the north than in the south we aver without the fear of successful refutation that the negro whether bondman or freeman has more true devoted friends in the south than in the north among the slaveholders than among the harping abolitionists and that his condition regardless of the relation of slavery and freedom is more tolerable in hands of the former than of the latter we are aware 
that there are exceptions to all general rules, but we confidently believe that where an exception exists in the one case, a corresponding state of wretchedness and degradation may be found on the other. Instances of the kind have occurred, and, if not prevented by physical force, would occur in hundreds and thousands of cases again, where, after the slave has been decoyed away from a comfortable home with a kind master, by some unprincipled fanatic, and carried to the land, flowing with milk and honey, as represented to him, finding himself deceived in every essential particular, respecting the nature of the change, he has torn himself away from the snare into which he has been enticed, fought his way back with a fortitude and bravery amounting almost to desperation, and returned to the home of his youth, the seat of his early affections and associations, satisfied that the best friend he has on earth is a kind master. The reason why there is more sympathy, charity, and fellow-feeling existing in the heart of the slaveholder towards the negro is obvious. Raised together from infancy, past the period of childhood in the enjoyment of the same sports, their associations the same, their feelings become united to a certain extent, there springs up between them a kind of natural sympathy and regard for each other, which is as enduring as life itself. From childhood's early dawn, they both imbibe a correct idea of the relation of master and slave, which continues them throughout life. Let their relations become changed. It matters not how, materially. This idea is never eradicated. If the slave ever forgets his obligations, so far as to become refractory, the punishment is summary and conclusive, and a return to his duty and allegiance restores him to favor. How different the condition of the fugitive slave, or free black man of the North! Without the pale of civilized society, unprotected and unqualified to protect himself, the most he can accomplish by hard labor, a rigid system of economy, and a frugal disposition of his time, is to obtain a bare and meager subsistence. The chilling blasts of long dreary winter come, or the burning fever of disease, and no kind hand is extended to shelter or afford relief. If cared for at all, when reduced to a state of utter helplessness, he is carried off to the poorhouse, receiving the imprecations of those who have been taxed to excess, to maintain the pauperism of their own wretched victims of poverty and distress. Thus it is with the free black man, wheresoever dispersed. He is an outcast upon society, and his name a reproach to humanity. His removal, then, becomes a matter of deep and abiding interest and importance to every friend of humanity, to every patriot and Christian throughout the broad expanse of Christendom. Much is being done by the Christian world 
for the cause of suffering humanity in all parts of the earth. The benighted inhabitants of the most distant ice-bound shore and the remotest sea-girt isle are beginning to stretch forth their hands in answer to the call of the Christian missionary, and the light of civilization is penetrating the deepest recesses of heathenish darkness, whilst a copy of the Holy Scriptures is being laid upon the table of almost every householder in Christendom. But here is a field opened for the exercise of pure benevolence and true Christian charity in our own immediate midst. Here is common ground, upon which all sects and parties, the votaries of every variety of religious faith and political policy, may meet and join hands in a great and good cause. As it is an evil which pervades the whole body politic, its removal is a work in which every American citizen is deeply interested. It is the first step towards the removal of that which many are pleased to regard as the blackest stain upon the bright escutcheon of American glory, the great national sin, the punishment of which will render our country obnoxious to the severest outpourings of divine wrath, namely, slavery. Many ways and means have already been devised for the removal of the free black population. But there is only one correct way of removing them, and that is by colonization. The great scheme of the American Colonization Society is the only means by which this evil ever can be eradicated from our land. That is a plan which was dictated by pure benevolence and true Christian charity and founded in wisdom, in which is characteristic, like the Magna Carta, of American liberty, of the great minds that originated it. Experience may suggest some modifications in some of its practical features, and doubtless will, but yet it is the true and only successful policy. It may become necessary to select some other destination than the colony of Liberia, or to require the government thereof to be administered by a functionary chosen by a congress of nations. But let what changes may come in that respect, colonization, a complete and perfect separation of the two races, is the only true policy. We lay it down as a settled principle, a fixed fact, and challenge the world to refute it, that the Anglo-Saxon and the African races never can live harmoniously in a state of political equality. If they dwell together at all, it must be in the relation of master and slave. Heaven ordained it thus, and man, in all his wisdom and strength of intellect, never can change it nor is there greater injustice displayed in this arrangement or dispensation of divine providence than there is in the organization of human government wherein one part of the human race is ordained to rule over and give laws to another heaven in wisdom ordained it thus and man submissive must pronounce it just 
we have asserted that the removal of the free black population can only be effected by colonization, and that the plan of the American Colonization Society was based upon the correct principle. It may then be asked, why does it not succeed? It has been in operation for many years, and yet has accomplished but little compared with the great work before it. True, yet it has accomplished much. It has opened the way, removed the rubbish, and laid the cornerstone, and now only wants the means necessary to the completion of the temple. For all this, time was requisite, and it is a pleasing reflection to know that the success fully justifies the labor and expense of the enterprise. All that is now wanting to complete the great work is unity of action, and means to carry out what has been thus successfully commenced, or, in other words, governmental protection and patronage. But the work is of a magnitude too vast and comprehensive to be accomplished by individual enterprise. The evil to be removed is of a general character. It is a national evil, extending throughout the whole length and breadth of the land. The resources of the nation, the funds of the general government, the coffers of the common treasury, ought, therefore, to be appropriated to its removal. Let no one be alarmed at this. We speak not without precedent. Similar appropriations, for similar purposes, have been made by our National Congress, when composed of as wise, patriotic, and noble spirits, as ever glittered in the galaxy of human greatness. The time was when the red man of the forest, the noble Indian, the proud aborigine, who derived his right to the soil which we now inhabit, by tenure of a grant from the god of nature, was dispersed abroad throughout the land. As the soil which he occupied, and the air which he breathed, began to be wanted by his superior in intellect, in science and in art, the general government furnished the means, and assumed the responsibility of removing him to territories more congenial to his pursuits of life, and less valuable to her legal citizens. There now exists among us the remnant of a race, whose residence in our midst is not less inimical to the feelings and interests of the white population than were the Indians. What, then, is the duty of the general government in regard to them? Does it not come as much within the purview of its legitimate functions to remove in the one case as the other? Are there any reasons which operated in the removal of the Indian, which may not be brought to bear with equal force in the removal of the Negro? If so, we maintain that the stronger reasons are favorable to the removal of the free blacks. The common feelings of humanity towards them, as an unfortunate people, whose destiny is fixed, whose name is a reproach and a byword, who can never be allowed a voice in the administration of the government under which they live, 
together with the demoralizing, degenerating influence which their existence in our midst has upon society, all point to them as an object worthy the attention of the general government. Their numbers are large. Their colonization, therefore, is beyond the reach of individual enterprise. The government, the world, have no right to effect its accomplishment by such means, whilst our citizens have the right to expect and demand it at the hands of the government. The latter possesses the power, and her resources are abundantly ample. The objection that the general government has not the means for so great a work is entirely futile. A small tithe of what is annually expended in injurious legislation or misguided appropriations would carry on the work. Indemnification to the South for the actual losses sustained by her citizens, by the aggression of northern fanatics, would contribute materially towards effecting the same great object. Add to this a tenth of the value of the magnificent sessions made by Virginia to the general government, and the work is completed. It is estimated that there exist in the United States about 400,000 free blacks. By the census of 1840, there were 386,293. At $50 per head, the ratio fixed by the American Colonization Society, their entire removal would cost 20 millions of dollars. But as their colonization is not the work of a day or a year, but of a series of years, only a small portion of this amount would be required at any one time. Say it could be accomplished in 10 years, which is probably the shortest practicable period. Two millions of dollars annually would be required, a mere nominal sum, surely, when compared with the actual resources of the government. This amount may be raised by direct appropriations from the common treasury, or by setting apart a portion of the proceeds of the sales of the public domain, or in any other manner which the wisdom of our national legislature, or a majority of the state legislatures, may deem most expedient. Can it be that a government, having millions of acres of fine arable lands, to donate to colonies composed of the refuse population of the old world, and millions of treasure to expend in fruitless expeditions in search of one who, in all human probability, is long since dead, is destitute of the means requisite to the accomplishment of an object involving every principle of humanity and security and protection to all classes of her citizens? Might not a tithe of the millions of gold which are annually being purloined from the rich mines of California by the mongrel races of other nations, for want of the natural protection of the government, be saved and appropriated to this very laudable and philanthropic object? The work may be carried on through the instrumentality of the American Colonization Society, 
or through any other agency which may be found most safe, economical, and expeditious. The prepossessions of the writer are in favor of the former, from the consideration that the society has made the experiment and fully tested the feasibility of the enterprise. The transportation may be continued to the now flourishing colony of Liberia, or it may be changed to some other destination, if, in the wisdom of our government, a change should be deemed expedient. Future developments in the progress of that colony, or considerations of economy or protection to the colonists, may indicate a less remote destination. It may be considered wise and politic, on the part of our government, to purchase and set apart for that purpose the island of Cuba, some portion of Mexico, Central or South America, or some portion of territory comprised within the present boundary of our vast domain. Let what may be done in this respect. The emergencies of the case require immediate and decisive action in relation to this matter. Justice to the free Negro and to the slave, to the slaveholder of the South, and the non-slaveholder of the North, to suffering humanity as presented in its most revolting character, imperiously demand it at the hands of the existing functionaries of the government. In our limited sphere, as a private citizen, we are unable to do more than suggest the idea, to mark out the framework the skeleton of a great system of national, moral, and social reform, which, in the hands of those who have the skill and ability, the influence and the power, to reduce it to form and practice, would be productive of incalculable advantages to the present and all future generations. Colonization, the transportation of the civilized and educated free black population of the United States to the shores of Africa, will undoubtedly prove the key to the civilization and Christianization of that benighted, downtrodden portion of the earth. The civilization of that people has baffled the energies of all modern missionary enterprises. Should the system of colonization, of which we speak, be the means of effecting this great work, this grand feature of the economy of heaven, as it unquestionably will, all Christendom will be made to rejoice. The children who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death will be forced to clap their hands for joy that Africa ever contributed of her sons and her daughters to a system of even nominal servitude the final result of which was the spread of Christianity, and the arts of civilized life throughout the whole length and breadth of her widespread but uncivilized domain. Its influence would tell largely upon the destinies of both races, and upon the prosperity, well-being, and perpetuity of our much-cherished republican institutions. It would settle this vexed question, and would allay the unhallowed excitement growing out of it, in a manner harmonizing with the glory of God and the well-being of mankind. 
the extinction of slavery has been the hobby of an unprincipled set of demagogues and fanatics from time immemorial the narrow minds the baser hearts incapable of comprehending but the one idea they have advocated that with a zeal and energy worthy of a good cause to such an extreme they have carried their frenzy and madness as to materially affect the peace harmony and prosperity of our common country and well-nigh destroy our grand confederacy by effecting a dissolution of the union of the states various names and forms shapes and phases has this germ of corruption weakness and folly assumed without accomplishing more than that of curtailing the wanted liberties of the slave and riveting more securely the shackles of servitude every movement which they have made has tended to perpetuate the institution and to establish beyond dispute the fact that the removal of the so-called evil can never be accomplished by any of the means to which they have ever resorted those therefore of our honest citizens who really desire the removal of slavery had better pause reflect for a time let reason usurp her dominion and see whether there be not some other plan by which their much desired object can be accomplished immediate abolition and elevation to citizenship and political equality never can obtain it is contrary to the order of nature and inconsistent with the imperishable principles of justice and humanity nor has there ever been a system of gradual emancipation proposed which would meet the exigencies of the case that connecting colonization therewith at a specified age would lead to a perpetual separation of families of husbands and wives of parents and children of which the annals of american slavery furnishes not a parallel and which in all its practical outbearings would lead to a state of things revolting to the feelings of every friend of humanity every american citizen who owns property in slaves holds that property by tenure of a right granted by the founders of our government the framers of the organic law of the nation our constitution the magna carta of american liberty the model political creed of the world recognizes property in slaves and was framed as much for the protection of him who holds that species of property as for him whose wealth consists in lands merchandise or manufactures the great fundamental principle which should constitute the basis of any and all governments that all men are created equal was recognized by that memorable body and incorporated into that constitution and we their posterity recognize it as true to the letter both in theory and practice but we like them should not lose sight of the principle that they were legalizing for the anglo-saxon race alone 
and not for the combination of races. For the American citizen, strictly speaking, and not for a motley variety of population, composed of an indiscriminate commixture of the civilized white man, the savage Indian, and the woolly-headed African Negro. No such combination was ever contemplated by that honorable body, and any attempt on the part of the citizens of any state or territory to form any such combination, or to elevate any other race to a political equality with the whites, we believe to come but little short of treason against the government. They may be permitted to dwell amongst us, and receive the protection of our government, but never to exercise the rights of citizenship. The slaveholder, therefore, knowing that he holds his property in slaves by this right, and not ignorant of the fact that the Bible recognizes the relation of master and slave, and that he, therefore, is violating no principle of our holy religion, so long as he legitimately uses, and does not abuse, the institution, will never suffer his neighbor, especially if he be a citizen of a free state, to say to him, Sir, your practices are in violation of the laws of both God and man. You must relinquish them. You must emancipate your slaves without the hope of fee or reward. Colonize them to Liberia, and then give them the necessary outfit for commencing life in their new sphere, or submit to their elevation to a political equality with yourself in our midst. Such a result can never obtain throughout the slave states. It is unreasonable to expect it, and the more it is agitated, the longer will the institution of slavery be perpetuated. No motive of this kind can ever be brought to bear upon the slaveholder. The deep-seated nature of his principles, the protection of his domestic rights, social privileges, and individual interests, will cause him to resist it as long as life lasts, or reason sits enthroned in his breast. But when the free negro, that curse of the slave and the slaveholder, shall have been removed, when the natural increase of the white population shall become so great as to render that species of labor cheaper and more desirable, in short, when he shall conceive it to be his interest to emancipate his slaves, and the general government stand ready to receive them at his hands, and remove them to a distant territory, where they may be comfortably provided for, and protected, then will he do it, and not before. Let, then, the free black population of the United States, wheresoever dispersed, be removed by the direction and resources of the general government, and let it forever after be a standing proposition, that all that may, at any future time, become free, shall be removed in the same manner. An insurmountable obstacle in the way of many who would emancipate their slaves from choice, were that all that would be required of them, were they not, 
by the laws of several states, responsible ever afterwards for their support, would then be removed. Each circumstance of the kind would have its influence in its own immediate neighborhood. Others, seeing that a way was provided for their removal and colonization, in harmony with the interests of both master and slave, would follow the example, and thus would the work be commenced under more favorable auspices, based upon a firmer foundation, and with better assurances of success, than it ever has been commenced, or, we believe, ever can be upon any other plan. No other plan ever has succeeded, nor is there any prospect that it ever will. Thus have we, as we humbly conceive, developed a plan which will, in harmony with the best interests of both races, when practically carried out, effectually remove the entire free black population of the United States, and all that may hereafter become free, should it include the whole slave population and their natural increase. We trust our views are not altogether undeserving of a candid consideration, and that the fact of their not being of princely origin and stately birth will not detract from their intrinsic value. We have proposed common ground, and a combination of effort in the removal of a common evil, a broad platform, where all sects and parties, without regard to local feeling or sectional interest, can meet and unite their efforts in the exercise of pure benevolence and true Christian charity. Could this state of things be carried out, we would hope, ere long, to witness a cessation of that unhallowed system of warfare which has so long ingloriously prevailed between the North and South on the subject of slavery. The Wilmot proviso, that vexed question, that high-born undeserving principle of strife and contention, which was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, that double refined element of northern fanaticism, designed only for the pampered and vitiated palates of the dignified statesmen and their fastidious aristocrat, that gilded hobby upon which broken-down political hacks would fain regain their lost estate and ride into high stations, we hope ere long to see buried in the meshes of eternal oblivion. Incalculable are the evils which have already grown out of the unhallowed excitement, engendered by the untimely agitation of this question. It has acted as a firebrand, hurled into our national magazine of combustible political elements. Plucked from the rectified principles of the Garrisonian school, the hotbed of northern fanaticism, it is but the transfer of the seeds of sedition and corruption from the humbler walks of the noisy rabble to the heart of our national legislature. It is no new principle, but an old tenet of a corrupt faction, a recognized element of a false political creed, 
under a new name and garb, and in a new sphere of action. Take any other tenet of that faction, or element of that political creed, and transplant it into a soil and climate as well adapted to its development, and watered by golden showers as congenial to its growth, the expansive elements of its nature will be exhibited in the same proportion. It requires no extraordinary powers of discernment to discover that every principle involved in this issue is founded in error and unwarranted by truth and justice. It is certainly a political paradox, without a parallel or precedent, that a government should, in the framework of her organic law, ordain a species of property, forbid any interference with the rights of private individuals, and subsequently, through her legal representatives in Congress assembled, enact laws especially interfering with those rights, by restricting the holders of said property to certain specified states and sections of our common country. Such a proposition is absurd and inconsistent with the fundamental principles of our government. And we are confident that no intelligent legislator who did not wish to make political capital with the multitude, regardless of the imperishable principles of truth and justice, would for a moment contend for such a principle. This question, we repeat, has been productive of incalculable evil, and we hope soon to see it, with all the various elements of false philanthropy, those empty fabrications of a dream, which have grown out of this unhallowed excitement on the subject of slavery, buried in oblivion. When this is done, and reason shall have assumed her dominion, when the system we have proposed, or some other of a kindred character, shall have been established, and each state be left to the free exercise of her legitimate rights, and the regulation of her own domestic policy and institutions, then will peace and prosperity again smile upon our common country. And as the tide of emigration and civilization shall continue to roll onward, like the mighty current of the majestic father of waters, state after state will rise up, tier upon tier, and knock for admission into the Union, until our whole vast territory, extending from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and from the Great Lakes to the golden city of the Montezumas, shall become densely populated, and present a mighty phalanx, one undivided confederacy of free and independent sovereignites, the most powerful, chivalrous, patriotic, and enlightened Christian nation on the earth. A result which every Christian patriot and philanthropist must desire from his inmost soul. End of Strictures on Abolitionism, Part E